our podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Life Fantastic, the podcast where people with disabilities talk about all things related to disability here on Straight Independent Radio. We're sponsored by neurodiversityconsulting.org and sanchia.org. Check us out on the web to learn about all the great things we do with people with disabilities. I am your host, the Idea Dynamo, Samantha Pierce, and I am joined today, as always, by my colleagues, Liza Citron, disabled autistic self-advocate and future special education teacher, Scott Davis, disabled writer, speaker, and entrepreneur, and Dr. Jeremy Pierce, I know he hates it every time I call him doctor, (laughs) philosopher, autism parent, and my husband. Today, we're gonna be getting into the topic of identity first language. And it's often positioned as person first language versus identity first language. But we wanna focus today on the identity first language. And if this is the first time you're hearing that, identity first language is a way of speaking or writing that positions a person's disability as an identity category, just the same way that man, woman, black, or white, those are identity categories. And identity first language is seen as a way to embrace rather than shy away from one's identity, one's disabled identity. Now, I must say, that the conversation, this conversation about identity first language is limited to English <laughs> because different languages have different structures. And so, you know, this often becomes a moot point when you're taking, you're taking this to another, a different language. So my first question for you is, when you hear someone using identity first language, what comes to mind for you? Jeremy, I'll start with you. So identity first language is when you put the term signaling the identity before any other terms that you use. So for example, uh, an autistic person would be identity first language um, rather than a person who has autism or a person with autism or Once or twice I've heard people use the noun autist, which uh, I I don't know what to make of because I just don't know where that comes from. Uh, But I guess that would be an example of identity first language. I I guess what comes to my mind when I hear it is that that's how the English language is typically used. I mean, I I don't think about the fact that that's being used. But when I hear person-first language, a person with autism, the first thing that comes to my mind is, here's someone who's been trained in person-first language, because it doesn't sound natural to me. So I, I think that's the first thing I would say. It, 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 the thing that sounds natural in, in English is having the category first as an adjective, not as a noun, that doesn't sound natural at all. But <laughs> uh, uh, the word autist does not sound natural at all. But, but an autistic person sounds natural to me. It sounds like the way the English language works. 
And if you think about other identity categories, we do that all the time and no one bats an eye. You would never say a person with blackness about a black person. You would say a black person or an African-American person. Uh, you might say a person who is African-American or a person who is black, but um, saying with autism, or I mean, sometimes people in disability terms will say person who suffers from, they will say that sometimes. And with some disabilities, that's more uh, welcomed by the people who have the disability. And in other disabilities, it's not. With autism, it typically is not by self, uh, by, by autistic people who, who, who comment about it don't tend to like that, from my understanding. But um, someone who suffers from uh, schizophrenia, say, you might hear people say that uh, or uh, something that's, that's more obviously seen in a medical way where, where it's seen as uh, by the people who have it as a medical problem. You're more likely to hear that kind of language suffers from. But I think more often you'll hear things like a person with autism, a person who has autism, uh, or whatever other term we're, we're using. If you wanted to do physical disabilities, you're probably more likely to hear that kind of suffers from language, I think. Uh, but I, I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know that I hear it that often. I, I, I used to hear it more than I do now. Um, but in that, in that case, they really seem very influenced by a, a, what was a very popular way of talking maybe 10, 15 years ago, that I think has, has gone away a bit since then. Scott, how about you? When you hear someone using identity first language, what comes to mind for you? How does that make you feel? The identity, that that's when you're saying a autistic person or, or developmentally disabled person, Yes, it's. It, I don't really think of it as negative. It's it's just another descriptive term, because mm. because because you're having that describing someone, and, and it's okay. It's very complex because when I read an article, it said that the identity first language is aligned with a minority a model of disability, and I forget exactly what that model was, but that's just. A, a, another avenue, but it's, as I'm saying, it describes that the person, as long as we don't demean them and make them second class, that's the key. The thing is, that, well, first of all, the minority model of disability is in essence, an extension of the social model of disability. The social model of disability states that we are disabled not by something intrinsic to us, but by the way society treats us and the barriers in society. I personally don't entirely agree with the social model, but the minority model is an extension of that in which we have this identity and we are marginalized on the basis of our being a minority. As for the demeaning, I, I, I agree with you, Scott. I do think, however, that 
more often than not, it's person-first language that is used to demean than identity-first language. Anyway, continue. I just figured I'd make that clear. Um, I was going to say, Scott, that I, I totally agree with you that whatever language you're using, what should be first and what is paramount is that we don't demean people and that we don't, in, in the way that we speak about people, create a second-class group of people, second-class citizenship. And that is a real concern when it comes to speaking about people with disabilities. And it's, it's clear that whether you're using identity-first language or person-first language, you can fall into that category of demeaning people and putting people in a second-class citizenship status. Now, Liza, I wanna, I wanna get your, um, you, you've spoken a little bit about it already, but when you hear someone using identity-first language, what does that make you feel? What comes to mind when you hear someone using identity first language? More often than not, for me, it's some sort of some sort of acknowledgement because first of all, uh, and and you, Dr. Pierce, you were talking about this as well, about how identity first language is the thing that seems the most natural in English. I mean, like you said, we wouldn't call someone, <clears throat> person with blackness, person with femaleness, Sam, we wouldn't call you a person with blackness, femaleness, and immigrantness or anything of that sort. And a lot of these terms don't even use person at all. Woman doesn't, it's not a woman person, it's just woman. And why is it that suddenly when it's a disability, we're treated differently. And I would have to say that's because abled people see us as different. They see us as out, more of an outward than other groups like women or black people or etc. Because we are different, we are even more different that extends to the way that we are talked about. As for what I feel like I was saying, it's acknowledgement and recognition because person-first language indicates most of the time that my being, as they would put it, with autism is just like my being with something else or my having autism is just like me having a coat or having glasses, which I can just take off and, and not be that anymore. That's not the case. It's an identity that has to do with how I see the world, how I'm treated in the world, and honestly, shaped what I'm doing right now. I'm doing some research on anthropology of disability. I'm going into teaching specifically because I am autistic and the experiences I have. If you imply that I can remove that, you are negating the recognition of the barriers 
that I face that you may not, and you may move more easily through the world because you have the ability to do things that I can't and be seen by the world in a way that I can't. And that, when people say that they don't see color or they don't see disability, because a lot of people, when they argue for person-first language, they're saying, oh, I see you as a person, right? Or I don't see your disability. I don't see you as autistic. I just see you as a person. And great, but not seeing me as autistic means you're not seeing an integral part of me, not seeing me as physically disabled, whether that's vis visible or not on that day, whether I'm with a using a wheelchair, whether I'm using another mobility aid or whether I'm using nothing. You not recognizing aspects of my disability is ignoring the struggles I go through day to day because of that and the way in which I have to work twice as hard to get what you might very easily mm. in the world. I have to do things that you don't even think about because you are accepted. <laughs> um, one of the things that I always think of when I hear someone using identity first language is, oh, this person's a bit of a rebel because there is so much of a push to use person-first language rather than the, the natural sounding identity-first language that we use for just about everything else. Yeah. So it, 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 takes, it takes a bit of guts these days to consistently use identity-first language when so much of what is put out there in speaking about disabilities is person-first language even though disabled people are on record saying, mm, yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm just disabled and that's okay. Don't use these euphemisms that, <clears throat> that try to get around it because disabled isn't a bad word. It is what we are and it acknowledges our struggles. And if you use things like, um, I saw that uh, in Dubai on a beach, there's, something that says their official terminology is people of determination. And if you're using alternate terms for us, that often places a different expectation on us. It treats us as though disability is not something valid and it's something entirely negative. And people of determination or special, that, that, that negates our needs, even though it's trying to acknowledge it, and puts other expectations on us to be determined or inspirational. And we've talked about that in the past. Yeah. Um, my next question for you, and you touched on this a little bit already, Liza. Um, what are some of the objections that you've heard to using identity first language? Uh, Jeremy, I'll start with you. Well, there, I mean, I guess there's, there's, some relatively decent arguments and there's some that I don't have any patience with at all, but I think some of the ones that are relatively decent would be uh, there actually is hard research that shows that children are more influenced in ways that 
that, that form stereotypes and stigmatizations when there is identity first language. Uh, but it doesn't, I mean, it's, it doesn't have to be identity first either. Uh, so if you say someone is a blank and you use a noun, it has the same effect. Or someone is blank and you use an adjective that way, it has the same effect. But for some reason, person first language, someone is a person who dot, 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 it doesn't have quite the same level of effect on children. So there is something to that. Because uh, it sounds, I mean, if when I first heard this idea, I thought it was ludicrous. How could anyone think it's possibly different? If I say someone is trying to think of another example, what other terms do we have where there's both a noun and a, or both an adjective and a, a noun form? Wheelchair bound, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that's not, I mean, there's no adjectives there. I mean, there's a wheelchair bound person, I guess, but what's the. Yeah. What's the, the noun form? I mean, I guess there's handicapped and there's someone has a handicap. Someone is handicapped or a handicapped person. I mean, I, I, I don't see any difference among those though. That's the thing, right? It, they sound all the same to me. They sound like they're saying exactly the same thing. But apparently there is a difference in how children will hear some things than how they'll hear others. And, and, or at least how it will affect them in terms of whether they form stigmatizations and, and stereotypes and so on. So I think that's a better argument than some. And, and they've tested this with nonsense categories. Like they'll just make up a word and say someone is a glug or, uh, and then they'll, 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 they'll ask a different group of kids, someone, uh, this is a glug person and they'll see how it affects them. Or this is a person who has glugness. This is a person who is a glug person. This is, and apparently when it's in an adjective form, modifying the, the, the person, they, they form generalizations quicker than if it's phrased as this is a person who has this. So that, that I think is, there is some actual scientific research that has backed up the drive to push person first language because they're thinking that with very small children, it will help prevent stigmatization and uh, stereotypes being formed and that kind of thing. But to be completely honest with you, I mean, if you're talking to kids in a classroom where you've got a, a kid that's in the classroom with them and they see that person's behavior and they get to know the person and so on, I just don't see how, uh, I mean, if they're, if they're good at educating the children there and helping them to look out for the, their, their peer and meet the peers' needs and so on. Uh, the, the, the small difference that these studies show is probably something because they're dealing with anonymous cases and they're not dealing with someone they actually know. So I think the real work is gonna be done in how they present this person who's right in front of them and how, how they present their needs, what's important for them, what their well-being requires and what their obligations are toward this person as their neighbor and as their friend. I, I think, think that's where the work is all going to be done. I think it's possible that that reaction to person first language that was cited in the studies is, is possibly exactly because person first language is so normalized. So when people use identity first language, it stands out because kids have heard in the few times they may have heard someone referring to a disabled person, they've probably heard person first language because not only for a certain generation, but for a certain 
group of people, a lot, oftentimes able people, person first language is what they will use. So it's the only thing the child has heard. So identity first languages stand, identity first language stands out when it is used and develops this sort of view. And then we're in a perpetual, you know, cycle where identity for identity first language is demonized and uh, person first language is validated because of these study results that are based on the fact that person first language is used and validated. I think one of the the biggest objections that the most often objection I hear when I use identity first language because it's what makes sense in the sentence. Yep. The, the, the biggest objection I hear is that using identi identity first language dehumanizes and denies and um, minimizes the personhood of the person you're, you're talking about, even if that person's yourself. And of course, my first thought is, no, the, the denial, the minimization of someone's personhood started long before someone referred to them by with identity first language. And, I just yeah, go ahead, Jeremy. I just I mean it's it's kind of weird that they should say that when they don't say it about any other category. Exactly. Yeah. Is it dehumanizing to call me a bearded person? Uh, or a person with a beard, or is it to call me a bearded person rather than a person with a beard, right? Uh, I, I, there, no one thinks that one of them is more dehumanizing than the other one. Or calling you a white man. Or, yeah, well, I mean, that's a, I mean, that's white is an adjective, man is a noun. Yes. Um, so if, if we're, if we're thinking that putting an adjective in front of someone is dehumanizing, why are we thinking that it's dehumanizing? Unless we think that the category itself is dehumanizing. Exactly. Yes. And That's the problem here. If you think that the category is dehumanizing, then the problem is not in the language. It's in your view of the category. Exactly. And if you need to, if you feel like I'm dehumanized, if you don't remind yourself first that I'm a person, We've got a bigger problem at stake. We've got a bigger problem with you thinking that I am not a person, like you said, because of that category, when you don't do this to anyone else. If you have to remind yourself that I am a person when you are describing me, then there's a larger problem with you dehumanizing a group of people and dehumanizing me and having to remind yourself Oh yeah, she's a person, isn't she? You know? Yeah, well, I'm not sure they're all that all of the advocates of person first language are reminding themselves. I think they're trying to remind other people. If you have to remind other people, then the other people have a problem. Well, and the other people do have out. a problem though. I mean, that's yeah. the thing. I mean, this is, our society is such that we have stereotypes and stigmatizations that are out there that affect us all. Exactly. We have implicit biases and just for your teacher and you're dealing with children and you want to try to combat that, you want to try to find methods that will help you do that. So, I, I mean, I don't think the motive is bad. I don't think that it's coming from teachers who are themselves acting on stigmatized notions that they're doing this. But I think what they're reacting to is the fact that there's a stigma that's out there. 
Yes. It's not that the language is what's reinforcing that stigma. It's, they, they somehow think that one grammatical structure more reinforces that than the other one does. And I mean, maybe that's so, but in the absence of anyone saying anything contrary and reminding them of anything contrary, it might do that. And that's what happens in all the studies. <laughs> There's no one saying anything to, to combat this, right? Yeah. But if I outright say frequently to children in a classroom who are around someone who has a disability, uh, remind them, hey, reach out to this person, include them and so on, then it shouldn't make a huge difference which grammatical structure I'm using. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I'm not doing that, then whichever grammatical structure I'm using, they could still be influenced by the stereotypes and the stigmatizations that are out there. And they could, they could develop um, behavior that forms habits that enact the biases that are fed into them by our society. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I think there's, there's, there's far more place for more proactive and thoughtful ways to combat those stigmatizations, those stereotypes, those harmful things that you could say. There are things you can say that are harmful, and uh, that 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 no, we're not drawing as much attention to. I mean, there are some that we are too. I mean, I I would be utterly shocked if uh, any teacher in my kid's school was allowing kids to get away with using the R word as an insult for people who are not intellectually disabled in any way. I, I would do. be shocked if teachers are allowing that these days. They it's, do. I, I, then they ought to be fired. I mean, it's really fired. Agreed. I don't mean disciplined. I mean fired. They shouldn't be around children if they're Agreed. allowing kids to do that and not calling attention to it. That's, that's, that's um, at this point, there's no room for that in my mind. And I'm in- instantly fired. And any union that prevents that is, is immoral. So, I mean, it's, it's, that's the kind of thing that, that should not be tolerated at all in our society. But why, why is the effort placed on a grammatical structure rather than what the content is? Mm-hmm. That's, that's what bugs me about this. So, uh, yes. I, Scott, um, yes. what, what are some of the objections? What is your experience with identity first language? My experience would be that a lot of times I got teased a little bit or, and maybe someone drives by and, and they kind of laugh at me, maybe because of the way I walk or, or, or just that there's, there's, there's the biases in their behavior. Hmm. They could just toss my books into the toilet or into the floor, or they could run around with my state um, with my pencil or pen when I was a kid in fourth or fifth grade. And, uh, I, I, don't don't, I don't see those, Scott, how that relates to identity first language. Okay. Uh, it relates to your identity, but it will, and, and what people did to you based on that identity. But it doesn't, I don't know, I don't see how it relates to the dichotomy between identity first language and person first language. I like the point, though, that Scott made about the biases in the behavior. Because that's really where, that's what it really comes down to. You can use person first language and still have the bias 
embedded in one's behavior, <clears throat> which is a, is a great point to call out, Scott. If they were actually used equally, I probably wouldn't be so adamant. Yeah, because when I was growing up... Are... Go ahead, Scott. When I was growing up, it didn't really matter. I mean, if it was... I didn't even understand, hear those identity first and person first because I... Because I think a lot of times dis, the disabled have their... We're in, the, in a world and it's hard to really... It's like someone taking Spanish or something, trying to understand another world. Because mm. it's trying to interpret of how people view the world. It's a worldview. Now, I, I think about when you were growing up, um, back then the R word was also the official word. Exactly, yeah. So it was probably used of you by like actual... Medical <laughs> like professionals. Medical professionals, right? I would imagine, but I don't know if they applied that word or not, but, it, but that's a case where I think, I mean, certainly by the 1980s, it had become stigmatized. And that was why we had a shift away from it. That shift was not entirely completed in official circles for 20 years. <laughs> and there was still an organization in our area that was using that term in its title in after 2000, right? Oh, and they still are in, in, in the Berkshires. Yeah, well, okay. So there's still people who are using that term. It's not in the DSM anymore. It's frowned upon by most. But that's a case where I think person-first language would make more sense. If you've got some official term that you're still using, but it's also heavily stigmatized in popular use in, in that severe a way. I mean, it was an insult that was thrown around on the playground among all of the kids I knew in the 80s. And it, it, it had such negative connotations that if anyone is going to be using it, using it as an adjective that way, or worse as a noun, I mean, as a noun should be right out, even in the 80s, that should have been right out. But, but using, using it as an adjective in the 80s bugged me as a kid. That just didn't seem right because of how people were using that word and what its, what its connotations were. You know, I was, I was in school in the, in the early... 2000s, late 2000s, and it was used against me as a noun. It wasn't necessarily even once they knew I, I am autistic or was autistic, but once they did, it obviously got worse. But well, I was the social outcast in different ways. I was Jewish, so I, I am Jewish, so I wasn't able to you know, attend Saturday events. I was different in ways apart from my being autistic. And that got thrown around for me as, as, as a noun and got even more thrown around once people knew that I was slash am autistic. So <laughs> it's not like it's gone away. Yeah, the next question I want us to consider is, should people be required to use identity first language as a matter of organizational policy or business policy? Because we do know that in, in a lot of the, the, in the human services, it's a requirement that people use uh, person first language. So <laughs> is it, should we be in the business of requiring people to use a specific way of referring to disabled people? Well, if they're 
regardless of what we should do, if they're requiring one, then it's okay to require the other. That doesn't speak to what we should do, but if they're now requiring one, why is it not okay were we to require the other? Either that or neither of them are okay and they should be phased out. I am personally on the side, at least in official business, especially public-facing business, that identity-first language should be used because that has an opportunity to get the world to actually accept it. Unfortunately, it has to be coming out of able people's mouths for, for the world to accept it. But that's the fact. They have power and privilege that we don't. And if it's coming out of their mouth as a regular occurrence, then maybe they'll be listening to because we sure as heck aren't being listened to in this regard. Jeremy, what are your thoughts? You are, you're in academia, which is one of those, that is where a lot of um, rules about what people can and can't say are often made. So, yeah, I mean, I've never seen anyone tell me what I should do with this. So I don't know. Um, I mean, I, I'm going to have to do a training on this at Syracuse University before the end of the year. I'm curious what they have in there. And if they have something on this in there, they're going to get a mouthful. So it's, it's, I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty sure they do because, because at least in the school of ed, everyone, everyone, everyone is, that's the policy. I've had to, to correct one of my professors this semester and she actually started using identity first because she agreed with me, but I'm pretty sure it's official policy especially because it has been in education for years and years and years to use person first. Now I'm not sure about philosophy, but if it's a policy here where the disability studies minor is located, I wouldn't be surprised if it was policy throughout the university. Well, I, I would be shocked if the philosophy department has a policy on that at all. I'd, I'd be utterly shocked if they even have a policy on it. Mm -hmm. But philosophers tend to be more nuanced and not yeah. going with the, the popular trends. And I, most philosophers who know about this issue know that there's a debate about it and are probably aware that the people in the categories in question don't always approve of, of person yeah. first language. So uh, I, I just know that what I do know about those who write in the philosophy of disability, they know that whole issue. and and are, are much more comfortable with using the type of language that the people in the category prefer. Yes. So, I mean, I've been graded, I, I've been graded negatively and, and penalized for using person first language, I mean, identity first language rather, about myself even and the community into which I fall. Hmm. That's problematic. That's yes. not just problematic, that's immoral. Yes, and anyone my, who's grading you down because of that ought to be fired, there. even if they have tenure. Yep, I had a <laughs> professor really not that. here, but in another school lecture me, even after throughout the whole semester, I wrote a long thing in a discussion post about my using identity first language for myself and the autism community and the disabled community at large. So this is still an issue in academia. Yeah, massive. Well, you, you also attend a college that is on 
the top 10 list almost every year of colleges that have um, unconstitutional rules about free speech. So, Oh, really? It's, <laughs> oh, yes. That doesn't surprise so, me. Yeah, they make but... the list every year. Oh, no. So it's 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 um, and there just haven't been enough lawsuits for anyone to 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 get the attention of the university. So but it's it's yeah, it's it's uh, I'm curious what's in this training. I'm 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 looking forward to seeing it and I'm looking forward to having an opportunity to push back against it if there's anything in it that I don't don't like. And I'd be shocked if there's nothing in it that I don't like. (laughs) There's probably gonna be something I don't like, but but how bad it is, I don't I don't know. Uh, but this is a much broader thing. It includes disabilities, I know. I don't know how far. Uh, it might be just a broader kind of thing. I just don't remember now offhand. Um, <laughs> oh, give me a copy. A trend. We know that disabled people, autistic people especially, and even deaf people and deaf people, people yeah. are all very comfortable with identity first language. And they see their disability as as a very important part of their identity and as as you've you've all pointed out one way or the other it's problematic when people who are not disabled insist on deciding how disabled people should speak about themselves so that gets us to the the overall question who gets to decide what disabled people call themselves, who gets to decide what is okay, what affirms our personhood, who decides that? Do disabled people get to decide that for themselves? Or do we continue with people who aren't disabled trying to tell disabled people how we should speak about ourselves? And I, I say trying deliberately because obviously we're not playing along with it. <laughs> recent uh, events, as recent events show and i'm sure we'll talk about that later <laughs> but i would i would say to enter in the conversation mm-hmm. this i can somewhat do i i do believe that the the disabled should definitely have that say of what we're gonna do because any great movement you need someone to to cause it to happen. Mm-hmm. And I, I think if, no matter if someone has any kind of perceptual, whether we're talking about blindness or we're talking something and how we process the world mm-hmm. as the autistic or the uh, intellectually disabled community, there's problems of how you process. And I've experienced in just how do you process what you're trying to learn and hear it can be how we try to gather the information. A lot of times when we're listening to a seminar that's on recorded, I have to listen to it several times because sometimes people speak fast in the classroom. I just adapt and write whatever as quickly as I can, but still it takes time to bring it to the forefront. Yeah, I've. this is way too much of an issue right now. A couple of months ago in a group that is it's essentially a support group for parents of developmentally disabled individuals masquerading as a disability advocacy organization. I'm not gonna mention the name because I don't want to, you know, have people seek them out and, and you know, shout at them. 
if people would. I'm not even certain of that right now. But there was someone who was saying when they were driving their daughter to a particular place, they live on Sand Island, and they had to pass by Willowbrook. For those of you who don't know, Willowbrook, which it was known as a school, but it was one of the worst institutions that we've seen. And one of the ones that we actually got to see the inside of the, the daily workings. And even then they might've you know, cleaned it up a little bit and people risked their jobs there and their possibly even their livelihoods or their lives to let people in to see what it's like. But they passed by this, this, this complex of buildings that was formerly an institution in which developmentally and intellectually disabled people were. And they basically said, it's so sad to pass by here. What a great job parents did. What a good job parents of developmentally disabled people or people who have loved ones who are developmentally disabled did to close this down and protested. And the fact is, it wasn't just parents. It wasn't just able, developmentally disabled people living outside of the institution and who were capable of doing so protested. And we were some of the ones who helped policy, legislation, et cetera, and, and got this place closed down. And we are not remembered. We are neglected because the abled individuals, the parents, the loved ones get to speak for us and claim this quote unquote great thing that they did. Well, a lot of it was actually us because we understood. We had the experience of being developmentally disabled, but we are just forgotten about and looked over. That's one of the massive things when we're talking about who gets to speak for us and who gets to set policy for us and who gets to determine how we're treated and remembered, or in this case, not remembered at all, forgotten. That is a, a, a vexing problem among with advocates who are attempting to advocate for people with disabilities. In the process of doing so, they deny the fact that disabled people have agency. They deny the fact that, yes, we can. And did. And did. And it's, it's really unfortunate because, from my point of view, effective advocacy is advocacy that recognizes the intrinsic value of a disabled person, and that nurtures that intrinsic value, that recognizes that yes, a disabled person can have agency, that yes, a disabled person can affect change in their own lives. And effective advocacy is making other people aware of that, helping other people to understand that. And this for me is, is one, of the, one of the issues with this speaking about identity first language versus person first language. The whole debate denies the agency of disabled people because look, we are perfectly capable of deciding for ourselves 
how we want to refer to ourselves. And if a disabled person says to you, oh, no, no, I'm not a person with a disability. I'm disabled. It's okay to say disabled. But people are still drawing back from the word disabled and they're still fighting against saying it. Well, what does that really say about how you value the lives of disabled people, the ability of disabled people to make changes in their own lives and to influence their own lives? Or vice versa. Yeah, I've had, or vice versa. I've had individuals tell me, I mean, a minority of individuals, but still tell me that they want to be called a person with autism or a person with Down syndrome or a person with a mobility disability, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And I use it. It's hard for me, but I use it. But when we debate this, if an individual tells you what they want to call them, that's perfectly fine. But this debate really goes into what to use when you're talking about a community and what to use when you're talking about an individual who's, of whose preference you are not certain yet. Use what is generally preferred by the community until someone tells you otherwise or tells you what they want you to call them. And that doesn't change what you call the community and what you change, change what, what is your default, but it does only change what you call that person, how you refer to them. And this gets to the, uh, the art of building connections and building relationships. Mm -hmm. And if someone doesn't quite have the skill to recognize that, oh, this person has decided for themselves what they're going to be called, and I will acknowledge that and call them that. If, if we don't have the skill to do that, you're going to have a hard time building connection, presuming that building connection is what you want to do in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> not always sure that in disability circles that people are there to build connections and relationship with disabled people. Um, given the way that they speak to disabled people and the way they respond when they find out there's a disabled person in their midst. Things get kind of sketchy. So it's important to think about, you know, when you're, when you're approaching someone to, to have a conversation with them, thinking about, well, am I going to be able to respond to this person and respect what this person says that they want? Am I going to be able to listen? A lot of distinguishing when to use identity first language and when to use person first language is observation of what the person you're interacting with wants and what they value and what they find important. Any of you, if you have any last words, please. Yes, uh, I'd say when you, were, uh, when you were talking, Sam, you were mentioning about building connections. And I think mentorship, that's where it's really important and allyship, which I'll be discussing in, in a presentation in the future, but it's on the idea of having, because when I came into the general pop, general education classroom, mm -hmm. they, my, the administration brought forth some allies for me in terms of the outside community building into me. Like when I was, 
learning to swim or, or even just how Mark Cantor came in and befriended me and we did some, went over to his house, we played some ball and other activities. And that's really where that leadership has influence that, uh, that Max, uh, John Maxwell says. So I, I believe that having that mentorship where those peers that can come alongside with understanding that that's where the whole piece can happen. So you have that under that mutual understanding and respect that you mentioned, uh, Sam. Mm-hmm. That's where community happens, and that's where true change happens too. Yeah, mm-hmm. thank you for that, Scott. Yeah, Liza, Jeremy, any last words? I think we also have to keep in mind that there's a, there's a general problem related to this about um, enforcing language use that's not specific to the disability arena. And um, sometimes what's okay to say and what's not okay to say changes so fast that a paper written by someone who is totally on board with the same people who are making the change in language, but it was written a year earlier, uses the language that's no longer okay. It, it was something that activists were using, and then suddenly it was no longer okay to use it. And, and people were calling out anyone who used it as if they were terrible. And meanwhile, members of that very circle had been using the word all along. <laughs> so it's, it's uh, part of the problem here is, it might not be that you're a terrible person, if you, you just haven't learned the new lingo. And, and uh, some people are slower than others because of who they're around and who they talk to and so on. And, and um, it may well be that you are all about transforming the issues of our society so that the biggest problems are not there anymore, but you just haven't learned the new fad in language. I, I, think, I think we have this push to police language more than other issues because we can do that. What does it take to actually change the structures in society? I can't do that, right? That's not something I can do. But what, I, what can I do? I can get after someone who uses language in a way I don't like. So people feel like they're doing something, but they're in fact not in some cases, right? It's a way to feel like you're doing something. It's a way to feel like it, 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 it's, it's, it's um, what's the word for it? Um, virtue signaling. It's virtue signaling. Oh, uh, yes. That's what it is. Virtue signaling. So they, they, yes. they, they, they're, they're like the example in, in the parable in the gospels. They're the person who makes it clear that they're giving the, the most money when they show up at the temple and worship. Yep. Right. And, and, and uh, <laughs> meanwhile, the widow who's giving two cents, who doesn't have any more than two cents is actually doing more than they, than they are, but they're the ones who are making this public spectacle that they give this tiny portion of their income. It's just so much more than everyone else is giving. It's just, they're so wealthy, right? And, and, and in a way, it's kind of like that, except not with income, but yeah. with, but, right, but with um, what you're actually doing. You're, you're doing this little thing that you're capable of doing because you can, and then you're, you're, you're showing it off, right? Another um, example, abled people who don't need straws giving up plastic straws. This is another form of virtue signaling, signaling that singles out disabled people who need, who may need straws. This is a comparable thing, but they're the same issue. 
Yeah. In, in, in many words. Stated very clearly, no, no, these are the reasons that we need the plastic straws. Please don't take away the plastic straws. Are you talking about people who, not people who ban straws, but people who voluntarily stop using them so that there are more for disabled people? No, people who support banning them, and oh, then just banning them. Okay. by them using a metal straw. Yeah, okay, well that's, uh, not I mean, to, but if, if, I'm, if I'm having a metal straw, and I, and this is relevant to autistic people, because autistic people are more likely to be diagnosed with epilepsy or other seizure disorders. If I'm using a metal straw, and I twitch straight through my soft power. Yeah. It's I wouldn't dare give a metal straw to our son. Yeah. The reason to give him a straw is so he can chew on it. Nor so he can chew it yeah. to bits. That's the point of giving him the straw. It's a sensory Yeah, my brother thing. is an autistic, but he has ADHD and he does that. I wouldn't dare give him a metal straw. That's not safe. Yeah. But, or a glass so, straw. Or the, the community college in town has these paper straws. <laughs> that would last him 30 seconds max. The paper straws frustrate me. We're probably going to have to edit this thing out. When I see him, when I see him, I'm not even like all that. When I see him chewing on on a pencil or something he shouldn't be chewing on, I hand him a straw. And he's great. He's fine. He's got what he needs. I I chew on pencils or pens. Yep. Well, chewing on pens is okay, but chewing pencils to bits. Yeah, and, 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 and gnawing on all of the parts of the insert internal yeah. pencil and all that. Anyway, as for the big issue really is that we need to disconnect someone's language use from their not only value as a person, but from their good or bad intent, from their from who they are. But at the same time, we can have preferred language and we can try and enforce it. We just need to, to disconnect it as it changes from someone's intention and, and whether they're a good person or not or any of that. And also make sure you're not listening to able people above disabled people who know about our own preferences and know and have these lived experiences. Well, we are out of time for this episode discussing identity first language and all of the issues that go around that with respect to how people actually view disabled people. You're listening to the Life Fantastic podcast where people with disabilities talk about all things related to disability here on Straight Independent Radio. We're sponsored by neurodiversityconsulting.org and sanchia.org. Check us out on the web to learn about all the great things we do with people with disabilities. I am your host, the Idea Dynamo, Samantha Pierce. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you, hear you next time.